So we're looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. And before we do, let me pray for us briefly for the preaching of God's Word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are the God who gave the Word, that you have breathed out every word by your Spirit, and that all of it is meant to lead us to the Lord Jesus. We do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see him this morning, that you would uh, command light to shine into the dark recesses of our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We do pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know not just the word, but the power of the gospel. We pray that we would leave this place not just with our heads full, but with our hearts um, uh, satisfied and, and fixed on you. And so we do pray that you'd show us your glory and that you would bless the ministry of your word as you have promised to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in John chapter 1, the Apostle John, and we only know who it is who wrote this by tradition. He refers to himself, as you know, as the disciple that Jesus loved. He didn't mean that Jesus loved him more than the others. He will actually use that phrase throughout to speak Jesus loved, but John uh, knew more of the affection um, for the Savior, it can be argued. And so, without mentioning himself, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, or perhaps it could be translated the only begotten who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, as I have noted, this uh, gospel has a a sweet simplicity to it and an excellent profundity to it. It it has been said that it is uh, shallow enough for a baby to swim in, and it is deep enough for an elephant to wade in. And as you read the Gospel of John, you understand that there's something special about this. It's different than the other three Gospels, not in that it doesn't show us the same Christ as the other three Gospels, 
but that the purpose for which John is writing it is different, and John is showing us things about the Lord Jesus that we don't see in the same way in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are striking differences, not just in the style in which this book is written. There are striking differences in the content. In fact, John doesn't give us a birth narrative of Jesus. He doesn't tell us about the baptism of Jesus. He doesn't give us an account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. He doesn't give us a full account of the transfiguration. He doesn't give us any of Jesus' narratival parables. He doesn't give us any of Jesus' accounts of casting out demons. There are many things in the first three Gospels that are not in this Gospel, and then there are many things in this gospel that are not in the interaction of the Savior with the woman at the well. You have Nicodemus. You have the raising of Lazarus, all unique to this gospel. And then you have this profound discourse that Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room that none of the other gospel writers give us. John Calvin, and you probably know this, um, has famously said, whereas all the other gospel writers show us the body of Jesus, if we may put it that way, John shows us the soul of Jesus. Um, I was downtown with some friends the other night, and we ended up witnessing to a guy who wanted to talk all religious, but clearly had never read his Bible and, and we encouraged him to read the Gospel of John. He said, why should I read that? I said, because it'll show you the soul of Jesus. And he said, what does that mean? It means that you'll see inner depths into the heart of the incarnate God in the Gospel of John. You will see depths coming out of the heart of the Savior. John, in fact, gives us more of the deity of Jesus than any other writer of the Gospel records. Um, He leads off with that, doesn't he, when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, there are themes that we're going to see as we go through this series. There are loads of themes. Uh, B.B. Warfield, the, the great lion of Princeton, when he reflected on this, said that we can call this gospel the gospel of the logos, the word. It's, it's focused on who Jesus is as the revealer of God. He said we can call it the gospel of light. Because there is so much about the light coming into the dark world. We can call it, he says, the gospel of of love. Because John is writing about the love of the Savior for his people. There are themes that are recurrent throughout this gospel record that, that John will continue to come back to time and time and time again. Well, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this prologue, and there is so much here, and we're taking a 30,000-foot view this morning of this. Um, I want us to consider three things, because John is intent, John is intent on you and me coming to a place where we see the glory of the Son. John will say that in verse 14, we beheld his glory. Uh, John Owen the great Puritan theologian um, said that the end of all of our meditation on Scripture ought to be a spiritual sight of the sun. So when we leave this place this morning, we will either have had a spiritual sight of the glory of Jesus or we will have missed the glory. 
John is writing this so that we would see. And so to that end, I want us to consider three things. First, I want us to consider the glory of the Son in creation. Then I want us to consider the glory of the Son in revelation. And then finally, the glory of the Son in redemption. We're going to see those three things in these 18 verses. The glory of the Son in creation, revelation, and redemption. We'll notice that John tells us here in verse 1, and you know this, it parallels those words in Genesis 1, in the beginning. Now, John is not speaking about the beginning of time. He's not speaking about a temporal beginning. In fact, John is taking us back immediately into eternity. Whereas uh, Matthew and Luke uh, begin with a narrative and and a birth narrative and a nativity. Um, And whereas Mark begins with prophecy, John begins in eternity. John goes back and and he, he tells us that Jesus is God from the outset. We may not know when we read this for the first time who the word is, but we learn in verse 14 very quickly who it is. This is the one who was made flesh, who dwelt among us. This is the one who is the light of the world, who shines into darkness. And he is the eternal word of God. Now, notice that John is telling us that uh, Jesus is God in the fullest sense of that term. He is not a God. He is not like God. He is not close to God. He is not of a different kind. Whatever makes God God in his essence is true of Jesus, the word. Um, I noted already that the book of Hebrews is sort of the parallel theology to the book of John and, and very similar in the beginning when the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us who the Son is, through whom the Father speaks. He says, he is the brightness of his glory. He is the exact representation of his person. He upholds all things by the word of his power. And and he made all things, and he carries them all along. He is God in the fullest sense of that word. And, And in order to understand who the word is and what he does and what he will do in your life, we have to first understand what he did at creation. Notice that John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Now, when, when John says that the Son, the Word, was uh, with God, the, the, the Greek is actually uh, toward. He was toward. He was face to face with the other members of the Godhead. He was God in in infinite fellowship with the other members of the Godhead. You know, when I planted the church that I planted uh, 12 years ago, I I taught a Bible study on the book of Genesis, and and I taught this, that, that what was God doing before he created all things? He was living in unbroken fellowship with himself, the Son and the Father together, and, and the spirit in, in perfect unity and joy and delight. And it was, it was actually reported to an overseeing church that I was teaching theoretical things. Um, this is the first word that John gives you in the Gospel of John. He was face to face with the Father. The divine counsel planning all things, everything that he was going to do from outside of himself, beginning with creation. That, that in that eternal council, all the external works of God were being planned by, by the members of the Godhead in harmony. And the Son was going to become the, the agent. He was going to become the word through whom the external works of God would come about. 
Now, um, there's been much confusion over the meaning of the word word, the word, the logos. Some have, it's a very elastic term in the Bible. Um, Some have taken it to be logic and reason. I don't think that's what it's saying. That that would just be about the inner thought, um, the inner life of this one. But but more accurately, it, it refers to the outer expression of the inner thought. That that the Son, who is one with the Father in eternity, is going from the internal reality of the Godhead, work outward in expression, and, and effect with very real power. Do you, do you know how much power it takes for Jesus to create the world out of nothing and give you life and breath and all things right now? How much power to uphold this whole world? Um, the outer expression of... The inner thought. Um, this is again the same truth that is expressed in Hebrews 1 that uh, the Son is the one by whom the worlds were made. By the way, that's one of the most important thoughts you can have every day of your life is that as you're going about and we're doing what we little people do down here. Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. That's astonishing. You could, you, could, you could just meditate on that thought all day long. Never gets old. Um, now, I don't think that John is just telling us that the word uh, is the Son in his glory in the work of creation, even though he's very clearly telling us that he made all things and that that, that would mean that he was not made. But, but I think that John is giving us, he's giving us something of who Jesus is for the greater need that we have now of the new creation. He's, he's telling us this at the outset of this book because he wants you to understand that what the Son did in creation qualifies him to do what we need in our life in the work of the new creation. That, that when the New Testament speaks about the work of the new creation and God making uh, things new and, and bringing those who are dead to life again, and, and we'll come to the discourse of, of uh, Nicodemus and Jesus and that great account of the new birth and the importance of that, when the New Testament wants to speak about that work, Listen to this. i got to read you this. Eric Alexander said, The New Testament ransacks the universe for comparisons that will be adequate to describe what has happened to us when we become God's children. And he says, Paul says, The same God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So, We are told about the work of the Son at creation so that we might know that he is also the one who works powerfully in the new creation. I want us to consider, secondly, this morning, uh, the glory of the Son in Revelation, because so much of this this prologue is, is, is focusing us in on Jesus as the great revealer of God. So as the word, he, he is the one 
who is the, the last and the greatest of the prophets. He, he speaks with all of the divine authority that he has by virtue of the fact that he is God. And, and one of the really helpful ways to think about this is when we read the prophets in the Old Testament and, and they introduce the word of God by the spirit of God with those phrases like, thus says the Lord, or the Lord of hosts says, when Jesus comes, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. He doesn't speak as a prophet distant from God. He speaks as the prophet who is God. And, and what this world needs and what you and I need more than anything is for God to reveal himself to us. Because at the end of the day, John is going to tell us that the world that the Son has made, that the Word has created, this world that we live in and we are a part of it, is, is enshrouded in darkness. That by nature, men do not know God. They do not seek God. They do not have the light of revelation in their hearts. They don't have the ability to come to a saving knowledge of God. And unless God reveals himself we would remain in the darkness. And so the Son comes from the bosom of the Father. He comes from the very epicenter of the infinite God, and he reveals God to us. Notice, notice what John says at the very end of this in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So when, when we see Jesus, we, we see the invisible God. This is why Jesus could say in chapter 14 of this gospel, when Philip says to him, show us the Father and it's sufficient, Jesus says, how long have I been with you, Philip, and do you not know me? When Jesus speaks, the Father speaks. When Jesus works, the Father works. Jesus says in this gospel, all that I heard from my Father, I declare to you. I speak what I've heard. He, he speaks of bringing divine things to bear. And, and the word in the Greek, and you may know this, is that, that he has made him known. He has exegeted God. We often talk about exegesis. We, we want to see the scriptures open in truth and, and exegeted and taught properly. And, and here in this passage, what, what John is saying is bigger than just opening the scriptures. Jesus opens opens the hearts of his people to understand who God really is. This is the same book where, where this one who is the great revealer will stand and he will say, no one, no one comes to the Father but through me, no one. There, there's, no, there's no trap door for Muslims and Hindus. There's no trap door for people that sit in evangelical churches and don't know him. There's no trap door. He, he is the only mediator. He is the only revealer of God. He is the only one qualified to tell us who God is and what he's like. Um, I love this. Eric Alexander again says, The invisible God has become visible in Jesus Christ, so that if you want to know what God is like, you come to the New Testament and you gaze upon Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, because everybody and their mom will tell you, you, you know what I think God's like? And if they don't tell you to look at Jesus, then they're not telling you about the true and living God. That's who God is in the flesh. He makes the invisible God visible. 
Um, you know, this is, of course, set against the background of what John says in, in verses 9 through 13. Um, we can sometimes mistakenly think that if we just use enough arguments with the unbelieving world, or if we're just kind enough or cool enough or likable enough or fun enough, that somehow we'll win people to the truth of the gospel. And, and John says, this one by whom the worlds were created came into the world that he made. And the world sitting in darkness did not know him. Um, I've heard people say, if I, could, if I could see, if I could see Jesus and see what he did, I would believe in him. No. No, you would not. Loads of people saw the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing attractive about him. There was nothing to be desired. Isaiah says he had no form or comeliness. He, he was exceedingly ordinary. He looked just like a, man, like a man, like any other man. There was no halo. There was no, uh, there's no regal, regal entering into the world. He came in lowliness and humility and meekness. He came in an unassuming manner. Um, and the world didn't know him. The world does not know him. And by nature, we are part of that world. And that means by nature, we do not know him. And John will tell us the reason why men don't know him by nature. He'll tell us the reason why that revelation is so necessary because he says in chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. You know, we don't do ourselves or anyone else's service when we downplay the severity of sin in this world. Um, in fact, when we downplay um, our own love of darkness by nature, we, we, we end up with a very low view of the Christian life and, and Christian service and our need for the gospel. So the more I recognize what I am by nature, the more you recognize what you are by nature, the more we understand the greatness of the glory of the Son revealing the gospel to us, revealing himself to us, revealing the will of God. But the light, notice the light, he says, shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it. Um, now, you may say, well, what about the covenant people? What about those who had been given the word of God for so long? And John now turns from the world in its darkness, not knowing the sun. And he turns and he says he came to his own. He came to the very people he had created for himself in the days of Moses and the Exodus. And, and, and they had all the word and they had the worship and they had the covenants and they had the giving of the law and they had the kingdom and they had the prophets and they had everything. Israel had everything. They had the best teachers. They had everything. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. The world did not know him. His own did not receive him. But the good news, notice verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, th there's a distinction here. As, as Jesus becomes the great revealer of God, as he, as he comes from the Father and he exegetes God 
to a world under darkness. Um, there's, there's a division and a distinction that happens. The world did not know him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But then there are some who do receive him. They, they receive the revelation about him. They, they will in turn receive the benefits of that revelation. They will believe in him. And, and the question ought to be, what makes the difference between those mentioned in verses 10 and 11, the world and the Jewish people, all who rejected him and did not know him, and those that received him? Well, it is the efficacious nature of his revelation that he has done something in their lives. Notice that John tells us, he tells us that, that as many as receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who, who are they? They were born not of the flesh, not of the flesh. It's not earthly lineage. It's not covenantal succession, not of the flesh. Notice, nor of the will of man. So it's not because some bring themselves to a place where they can will something better than everyone else, but it's because they've been born of God. God has graciously brought them from death to life. That's one of the great themes in this chapter. As the Son is the great revealer of God, he is the one who calls men from death to eternal life. Um, now, John moves very quickly to the glory of the Son in redemption. We've seen the glory of the Son in creation, the glory of the Son in revelation, and now the glory of the Son in redemption. And, and one of the great verses in the Bible, one of the greatest verses, and in fact, you, you would be hard-pressed to find a clearer word in Scripture about the incarnation than this verse, verse 14, the Word became flesh. Now, he didn't cease being God. He didn't, God did not become man and cease being God. The word added to himself a human nature, and he became flesh. Um, that word, as some of you will know, that word is very elastic as well. Sometimes flesh in scripture uh, speaks of the sinfulness of fallen humanity, uh, the fleshliness of a world that loves darkness. Sometimes it speaks simply of humanity as descended from Adam. And then at other times, many times, and here I think it speaks of the frailty of man under um, the dominion of this fallen world, under the misery of this world. And, and think about this. The word who created the world out of nothing by the word of his power came into a world full of darkness, took flesh to himself, was subject to all the weaknesses of this life yet without sin. Um, and I think John is picking up here, introducing here what he'll pick up in chapter 6 to explain the significance of that. He doesn't actually do it here. He says here, simply the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. But in chapter 6 he'll say, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. He says, my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. And so why did the eternal word take flesh? He did it so that his flesh could be torn apart on the cross for our sin, so that we could feed on him and live because of him. Um, 
You know, it's interesting. At the beginning of this section, we're told that the word is face to face with the other members of the Godhead and, and that he comes to reveal God to us. And, and when you come to verse 14 and John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, you get the sense that what it's saying is he came in the flesh to be face to face with you. He came in the flesh so that you could know what it is to be face to face with the living God in fellowship with him. Isn't that marvelous? Have you ever thought about this? Why, why, did, why, did, why did God dwell in a tent in the wilderness? Because Israel dwelt in tents in the wilderness. And so if God was going to come, if Yahweh was going to dwell with his people, he had to become like them. To be with them, he had to become like them. And John is picking up off that Old Testament imagery. He says, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. This is the same God who dwelt in the tabernacle and the temple. But now he's not in a physical tent like that. He's in the tent of his flesh and in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. Why did he take flesh to himself? The writer of Hebrews says, just as the children had flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that he might destroy him who had the power of death. To be with you, he became like you. Isn't that awesome? How would we ever know and love and worship the God against we've, whom we've sinned so grievously if we didn't know that this is the same God that said, I will be with my people, I will become like my people, I will give them my flesh for their souls as the bread that came down from heaven, I will feed them, I will protect them, and I will have them in intimate fellowship, and I will bring them to myself in glory, because the word became flesh. That's how we know. Now, notice as John is still expounding the Glory of the Son and redemption. Notice this. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, um, grace and truth are distinct but inseparable attributes of God. Grace is the overflowing of God's compassionate heart for the undeserving. In fact, grace and mercy are really the overflowing and the expression of God toward those who have demerited his favor. That, that in Christ, he is, he is full of grace. When, when you think about Jesus Christ, do you think about him as a rigid, harsh, moral teacher? Or do you think about him as the one who said, come unto me and I will give you rest for your souls? Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. He is full of grace. Jesus never runs out of grace. There's never going to be a time, if you're trusting in Jesus, where you go to him needing that grace, needing, needing to be restored, needing his, his mercy and his kindness, needing his atoning sacrifice, and, and he'll say to you, I, I, I don't have any more grace. Um, I have a friend who uh, really doesn't like stained glass windows of Jesus, and, and he says to me, 
my, my, one of my big problems is in every supposed image of Jesus in a stained glass window, I feel like it's a Jesus that says, you know, come unto me, but not with too much. This is, this is the infinite God. This is, this is the one who is the image of the invisible God, full of grace, and he is also full of truth. Now, if the Lord were just to deal with us on the basis of truth, we all perish eternally. Um, he will not set aside his justice to be gracious to you. And yet, in Jesus Christ, there is this beautiful conjunction of grace and truth, so that because of the Lord Jesus, God is toward us who believe in him, both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So that as Jesus Christ exists in one person, two inseparable natures, God and man, so within that one person exists these two seemingly contradictory attributes of God in all their fullness. So how does God maintain his justice and show grace and mercy to sinners? He sends his son to come in the flesh and to do what we could never do for ourselves on the cross. I want to encourage you as we look at this together this morning to ask yourself is, is my great desire to see the glory of the sun? There, there's, there's, no, there's no bigger need in our lives. Um, I don't know about you, I, I can worry and fret about many things, but, but the scriptures teach us that, that the biggest thing, the one thing necessary, the thing that we got to go back to time and time and time and time and time and time again is, is a longing to see the glory of Jesus Christ as the creator, the revealer, and the redeemer. You can never think about the Lord Jesus too much. One, one old French reform theologian, Adolphe Monod, as he was dying, he, he gave 25 sermons on his deathbed. Um, and uh, in one of those sermons, Monah said, I can never think about Jesus Christ enough. He said, I meditate on him. I pray to him. I cry out to him. I seek to abide in him to such a degree that if he were not God, it would be idolatry and idolatry of the highest order. But because he's God, you can never worship him enough. You can never meditate on him enough. You can never praise him enough. You can never delight in him enough. You can never talk about him enough. I want to tell you this just briefly. When I was a very little boy, my grandfather, who was not a Christian, my sister and I would be in the back of the car, and we were probably four or five years old, and we'd be talking about Jesus. And I remember on one occasion he said, Stop talking about Jesus. I'm tired of hearing about Jesus. That's how the world thinks about this, but for Christians, you can never think of him enough. You can never see enough of the glory. There's always more. Um, there's always more to see. I want to encourage you, as you leave this place this morning, that uh, you would be digging into God's word to see more 
of this glorious Son who came from the Father in order to redeem sinners like us, to be our light and our life. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would command light to shine out of darkness into our hearts, and we do pray, our God, that you would show us the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that though you are God from all eternity, yet you came in the fullness of time. We thank you that you took flesh to yourself. We thank you that weak and poor and needy, you came into this world that you might redeem us, that you might give us your flesh for the spiritual life of our souls. We pray that you would send your spirit to make us to long for you more, to worship you more, and to draw near to you more. We pray that you would do that in us by the word of your power and your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.